Welcome to the Successful Rental Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Silverman. Together, we will dive into and dissect the rental property and talk about the dirty work of real estate, property management. We are going to explore the nuts and bolts that turn a vacant property into a cash-flowing asset, creating long-term wealth. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Today, we're going to talk about the most important lesson I learned the summer of 2008 and in the years of 2009 and 10 um, cash flow when you are working with rental properties cash flow is king queen the prince the princess the whole royal family when I got started in real estate everyone talked about equity equity is wonderful equity is great equity this equity that all that matters is your equity. Create your equity and you'll be good to go. But I can promise you this, and I learned this the hard way. When you go to a gas station, they will not take your equity and put it and trade that for gas in your car. You cannot, and I repeat, cannot go to a grocery store and say, yo, I'm starving. I've got all this equity in my house. Can I trade some of that for some food? Because I'm hungry. Because late 2008, all of 2009, I was pretty damn hungry and no one would give me money for my equity. The reason being is equity is a figment of our imagination. It's not real. We can have all the debates you want about, hey, it's real, it's there, it's my net worth, blah, blah, blah. But when it can vanish for no reason whatsoever, I don't consider that real. Equity is important if you're looking to refinance and when you're dealing with banks and lending and all that kind of stuff. So there are practical applications to equity, but not, not, it's not nearly as important as ca- cash flow. Cash flow is everything in my book and equity is a uh, cherry on top. And also the reason being, I want to fully leverage a property as much as possible. I'll have an LTV, loan to value of 100% if the cash flow works, and I have zero equity in the property. That works for me as long as the cash flow works. So in my book, cash flow is king, 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 queen, the royal family, the whole nine yards. Um, there There is nothing else of importance. Caveat, again, equity is important when dealing with banks and looking for lending but cash flow is king. Um, so that's what we're gonna talk a lot about today, cash flow. Now, as we get into cash flow, talking about some numbers and what you can do with things, I don't know if you noticed a, a few seconds ago, I said I would happily leverage a property with an LTV of 100% um, because I'm comfortable with that as long as the cash flow is there. I know some people that say that's crazy. They want 50% at most loan to value. And that works for them. That's wonderful. And that is what is important, the, the, the main part about this conversation. You have to do what works for you. It's not what works for me. It's not what works for somebody else. It's what works for you. What do you feel comfortable with? And that's what's important. We're going to talk about concepts today so that way you can you'll absorb those concepts and then apply those to your rental property in your situation. Again, 100% LTV for me is great. I'm fine with that as long as my cash flow supports it and that's what's vital. 
because I'm not looking to sell that property. Now, if I wanna sell that property in three years, oh, I want some equity in there, so that way when I sell, I'm not bringing cash to the closing table. So even in my own scenario, in my own life, what I want from a debt from a debt ratio, from an LTV standpoint, varies depending on the property and, and what the goal of that property is. So there is not a one size fits all from person to person, and even within your own portfolio, there is a difference in what you may want to do on one property versus the other. Um, so remember that. We're, we're going to talk some examples and we're going to talk some numbers. And if it doesn't work for you, that's wonderful. That's fine. I'm not saying it has to be. Um, anyone who tells you this is what you must do, must do, must do, turn them off, tune them out because they don't know your specific situation. So always remember, it's your situation. When we talk about cash flow in a, in a rental property, as an investor, when I go to buy things, I hear this all the time, especially on small multifamily. I don't hear as much on single family, but small multifamily, I hear it all the time. I get the profit and loss statement because that's how you value a small multifamily. Your residential properties, your one to four units, it's based on comps, sold comps in the area. Your cash flow is irrelevant when you're talking about the value um, to a potential buyer. Um, yeah, you can kind of finagle that a little bit based on cash flow, but the banks, when they lend, they're not not—they're going to look at cash flow secondary, they're going to look at comps, and then they're going to look at cash flow's ability to support it. Unless you go with a commercial loan, then they're going to look more heavily at cash flow, but it'll still be a comparable sold. Um, time is a cost. So um, when, when I evaluate a property as a rental property, I factor in management costs. And people will often wonder, like, why are you factoring in management costs? You own a property management company and you do it yourself. Like, you're correct. I do own a management company. But there's still a cost there, even though it's, I want to get paid for my time. As a real estate investor, you wear multiple hats. When you put deals together, that's one skill set. Putting the deals together, you find it, you put the numbers, calculate everything, you bring the money in, you get the deal closed. That's one skill set. Then the ongoing management is another skill set. And if you have both of them, wonderful. And if you're handy and you can do some of that work yourself, wonderful. That's great. You still got to factor in your time as a cost. The reason is, is eventually when you sell, your buyer is going to factor that in as a cost because they're going to have to do the work or they're going to be paying someone to do the work. And also, I'm real big on contingency planning. Even if you are doing your lawn care and you are doing your own property main, property management or and your maintenance, small maintenance, what happens if something happens to you and that property then goes to your spouse or your kids or whoever, whoever you, it's in your will it goes to? Those are all of a sudden going to become real cost to them. And then that property that you thought, hey, man, this is crushing it. I'm making $100 a month after expenses, and you didn't include your time as an expense. Now, all of a sudden, they're sitting on a property that they can't afford because they're actually losing money every month once they factor in property management, lawn care, and whatever else is, being, is an expense to that property that you were doing on your own. So you always remember when we're talking about cash flow, always include your time as a cost. Now, I'm not saying that you have to take that money out and pay yourself market rate and all that kind of stuff. No, I'm just saying as you analyze this stuff, always think about that cost. I'll have people tell me, 
as a management company, I'll meet people and they're like, yeah, well, if we get 1600 in rent, our mortgage is 1550 so we're net, netting 50 bucks a month. But then, you know, we're going to pay your management fee and then we're only losing a little bit a month. So it works out. I'm like, no, that's not a good investment. Your investments are losing capital in real estate. No, you, you don't want to be losing monthly. It's a bad investment. And that's when people end up selling the properties for whatever they can get later on just because they want it out from under the debt. Um, which in that case, equity is very important. So that way you can have some cash at the closing. Otherwise, you're going to be paying. Um, Let's see, what was I going to say there? Um, so as you factor in your time, include it in there. And just, just remember, your time is valuable. It's your only asset that you have that's diminishing. You can always go get more money. You can always go get another house. You can get another rental property. You can always get more of that stuff. Time's the only factor you can't get more of. And if you found a way to get more of it, you're not buying a single family property and you're not listening to this podcast because you got billions of dollars and you're doing whatever you want. All right, so two important factors so far. One, no one answer fits everybody. Two, include your time as a cost when you're looking at a rental property and build that in there. And, um, and trust me, you'll be much, much happier when you do. So let's talk about your debt level on a property. I'm a huge fan of leverage, properly leveraging debt. That's the big mistake I made in 2008, I didn't pay off debt as I went. And so it got into a crunch, but fortunately my cash flow was able to pay for that debt. Um, so I was able to hold steady, but I wasn't able to continue growing during that time period. Um, we just held what we could and just paid off debt as we went. Um, so it, it ended up working out well. I mean, now everything's good, but it took a long time to recover. So. How does your debt compare to what you feel comfortable with? My personal philosophy is I want as much debt as I possibly can because I want to move on to my next property. So having like our last project, we have $35,000 in quote unquote equity tied up in the property. At least that's what the bank told us. Maybe it's more than that. Yeah, about thirty-five to 40000 tied up there. I would rather take that money and go use it on another project because when you when you amortize that out over a 30-year note I'm looking at maybe an extra 20 bucks a month maybe I've got sufficient cash flow to cover that by easy and so I'd much rather take that 40 grand and go buy another property um, I do know some people who um, want zero debt they want everything free and clear and then because it's for them an ease of mind in my opinion that limits your growth because you can't grow. But for them, it's that peace of mind knowing that no matter what happens, they've got large cash flow coming in every month and they're never gonna be foreclosed on because they have no debt. And for them, that works. And you're gonna fall somewhere in between. And maybe you're on one of those extremes. Maybe you're like me, full debt, go for it as long as your cash flow is there, or you want no debt or something in between. Um, so I, I would encourage you, if you are on the mindset of having lower debt to no debt, to start thinking about why do you view no debt on a rental property as a good thing. Um, not all debt is equal. Some debt is business debt, which helps you gain more money. And then some is consumer debt that is not growing in value or assets, um, like credit card debt on um, 
your TV. You know, TV's not going up in value, but now you're paying interest on that and whatnot. So debt isn't always clear cut one in the same. And as we start talking about cash on cash return and return on investment, you're going to see, see what I mean, how your debt, how if you can properly leverage debt, it's going to cause your rental property to perform better, at least in my book and how I evaluate numbers. Again, how do you evaluate numbers? Now, I talk about cash flow and how cash flow is vital. It's all that matters. Cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. But there, you also have to think about preserving your investment for the long run. So I'm specifically referring to preventative maintenance. Now, if you look at preventative maintenance, it's preventative. There's nothing wrong. So why are you doing that maintenance? Um, it's because if you don't do it, something could happen in the in the long run. And so, as you look at your property, you got to vow, you know, look at how can you wisely spend your money and still make cash flow. It's like a termite bond. If you live in Charleston, South Carolina, it's really wise for you to have a termite bond. Um, yeah, it's going to cost you seven hundred to a thousand dollars to set up, and then ongoing two to three hundred dollars per year for that renewal and you're getting zero income back and so on one hand you could say well it's hurting my cash flow and it's not good on the other hand you look at it and say "Ooh, those termites it's not covered under my home mortgage home home insurance i mean and that could end up running me you know twenty thirty forty thousand dollars to repair that termite damage now, maybe you only get termites and it's a $1,000 damage. Well, cool, good, move on. But is that termite bond worth preventing that termite damage in the future? Again, it comes down to your cash flow situation and what your needs are. You know, other things, quarterly pest control. I'm a huge fan of quarterly pest control um, on my rental properties. reason being is if the tenants don't take care of the pests, I've got to deal with it anyhow when they move out. And I don't want that pest problem to become an infestation and yes you know some landlords will say in property management come and say well, well let me just bill that to the tenants when they move out or if the damage exceeds what their security deposit is because you got pests everywhere i mean i've seen cockroach problems that would make you throw up um unfortunately i'm kind of used to it but after <laughs> looking at investment properties for so long um so i don't get doesn't bother my stomach anymore but some people would throw up when they see it um and if you think I'm kidding, go, go search my uh, Instagram feed back to Markham in early November. and You'll see some pretty gross stuff. Um, and so that quarterly pest control helps prevent that. And that way you don't have that problem going forward. And also, it's a great selling point when you tell tenants, hey, we, we pay for quarterly pest control. And so then you're able to possibly raise rent a little bit. Um, so maybe you can recoup some of that. You're not going to recoup all of it, but maybe some of it. So I'm a big fan of that. Pressure washing. Depending on where you live, again, Charleston, South Carolina here, pressure washing is kind of a necessity because you're with as humid as it is here, you're going to get mildew growing in the exterior of your house. And although that mildew doesn't cause significant damage, it will stain your siding which in turn makes your curb appeal lower, which in turn means you're going to get a lower rent, and which means also when you go to sell, people are going to look at your siding and be like, hey, yo, dude, it's dirty. I don't, I'm not paying full market for this. And so that pressure washing is 
you know, in my opinion, important to do at least once a year. Depending on the type of siding you have, maybe you can get away with it every other year, depending on where the wind comes and blows and dries and the sun setting and all that kind of stuff. You know, again, specific to your property. Then you can do sewer line inspections. You can have HVAC maintenance plans. You can have refrigerator plans. You can have all sorts of plans on preventative maintenance. You can't do all of them because if you do, you're going to pay more per month than you're even getting in rent. It just doesn't make sense. So you got to figure out what works in your neighborhood. And if you're sitting up north somewhere, you're thinking, well, I got to do stuff for snow as preventative maintenance. Awesome. Factor that in. I have no idea what you have to do. We don't get snow but once every six years here. So it's not something I worry about. But for you, that might be you know something present. You don't care about termites in your area because you don't have them. Awesome. Cool. Don't worry about it. Um, so that's when I say, like, so you got to balance. So although cash flow is vital, you can't do everything possible to raise it because if you start ignoring the things that you have to do to maintain your property, your property is going to be less valuable in the future. And you're not going to be able to get those higher rents that you want because your property value and quality and appeal is starting to fall down. And you don't you don't want that. So you got to maintain your property, but you can't do all the preventative maintenance either because you, you just go broke. That's not a not a wise decision. And now part of cash flow um, and negating future expenses falls under there. Home warranties. I, to say I disdain them would be an understatement. Um, they run five to seven hundred dollars per year, five hundred to seven hundred dollars or more per year, depending on the one you get. Plus, you got to pay your seventy-five dollar trip to the vendor to come out and take a look at it, and maybe the the repair will be free, or maybe it's not covered, like HVAC repairs. They don't cover um, Freon. And Freon's pretty damn expensive if you've ever had to have a Freon repair. Sorry for that sip. I'm drinking a little bit of tea as we go to keep my throat dry. I mean, keep my throat from getting dry. So with those home warranties, I recommend this to all of our clients. When you have work done in your house, you want it done by a licensed professional and you want it done by someone who does it of quality and will stand by your work, behind their work. When you go with a home warranty company, they're sending out the lowest bidder possible so they can retain as much as their money as possible. And that guy or girl coming out on that warranty call typically doesn't do a good of a job as a company coming out who is coming out for just a regular maintenance call and they're getting paid market rate. Um, it's just the lower cost individuals usually doesn't do as good. Not always. We've had some warranty people do phenomenal jobs, but that's more of the exception than the norm. I once had a client many, many years ago. I discourage all my clients from home warranties now. The uh, microwave needed repaired. You know, one of the built-in microwaves that go above the stove. Brand new, what, 250 to 350 I mean, they go up, but just a standard, standard one, you know, uh, from builder grade installed it was a newer subdivision three months for the repair to get done on a built-in microwave the vendor went out there multiple times the reason why is because they got paid multiple times they went out there my client only had to pay the initial $75 but the vendor got paid from the home warranty company each time they went out and then they had to end up ordering the part 
and getting the part. So three months later, the microwave is finally repaired. But in the meantime, my client had to buy a countertop microwave for the tenants because we had a functioning tent microwave working in there. The lease said we had one, so we had to provide one. So he actually ended up going and buying a brand new microwave to go on the countertop. Wasted money, whereas if we just called an appliance repair company, they would have went out there and looked at it and said, hey, this is trashed. Like, like your repair is going to be $400. Just go get a new one and install it. Instead, the home warranty company did everything they could to cut corners and do it by the book, which is you know what they were saying. is like, we're doing it properly. But in reality, they were trying to save money, and it cost my client a heck of a lot more money than it's worth. And I know some of you are thinking, but my home warranty has saved me money before. I'm like, when it's your home, yes, it, it, it can because, again, most people don't factor their time as a cost. And so they don't mind coming home and meeting that four to eight hour window that the vendor gave because they're saving money on that repair. Your tenant, however, is another story. Your tenant's not saving any money because it's your responsibility for the repair they're missing work to sit here for a vendor who sometimes doesn't show up because again, they're, it's the lowest bidding vendor. So they might or might not show up on time. They might not hit the window frame. And tenants do not like that. The number one reason why tenants move, well, one and two, I always forget which one's one, which one's two, but the top two reasons are, one, they don't like how maintenance is being handled. And two, they don't like the landlord property manager. And the reason why they don't like the landlord property manager is usually because of how they handle maintenance. And so when you have warranty repairs like that, that eat into the tenant's time, yeah, you don't care. It's not your time. It's their time. Well, you should care because it's your vacancy when they move out. It's your turnover costs. It's your lost revenue while it's sitting vacant. So if you want to look at everything in a silo and say, hey, it's this thing right here impacts nothing else, then fine. Think that way, but it's wrong because life is a series of events um, that paint an entire picture and tenants move for various reasons and home warranties and how their maintenance is handled is one of them. So you love home warranties because it just feels good that if your HVAC unit goes out, they're gonna give you a brand new one. Well, typically they don't give you a brand new one, they'll give you credit towards one, but hey, another story for another day, take it up with them. Take that $500 and Put it in a savings account every year, whatever the cost of your home warranty. Put that into your savings account every year. It's going to be, what, let's say $500 for five years. You have $2,500 there. That replaces any appliance that you have, plus it's halfway to a HVAC unit, which odds are they're only going to pay 2000 to 2500 anyhow. And most home warranties are 700 these days, and so now you're looking at 3500 in there instead of just 2500 So. That's my spiel on home warranties. A lot of people buy them because they think they're saving money and it's helping their cash flow position when in reality it's hurting because of one, it might be unnecessary. Uh, two, it's usually sub subpar vendor maintenance. And three, it pisses tenants off because of the inconvenience to them. And then you're going to end up with some vacancy. All right, so let's talk about how, how do you analyze the actual numbers? We're going to talk about cash flow in the simplest of all senses. What do you have after your rent comes in, you pay your bills, and that's it. Uh, when you have a mortgage payment, your mortgage payment includes a principal payment, 
when you start talking about taxes, you add that principal payment back in. Um, we're not going the tax route. We're not going any high level stuff. We're just looking at strictly what income came in and what went out. And so, because mortgage payment, when you when you the interest is an expense, but the the principal portion of it is not an expense. Um, and so, when you look at your when you when net operating income, you you factor principal payments back in. But we're we're not going to do that. We're looking at strictly cash flow what comes into your bank account and what goes out. And when you start looking at cash on cash return, which is a common way you evaluate your rental property, you take just an annualized number, take the cash that you brought in, take, take your net operating income, your income minus expenses, and then you divide that by the cash that you have invested in that deal and it gives you your cash on your cash return for the year. Well, multiply it by 100 and it gives you a percentage. Same thing with rate of return. Rate of return is very simple. It's, it's similar, except it's your total investment. If you've paid cash, your cash on cash return and your rate of rate of return, your cash on cash return and your rate return on investment. Sorry, your return on investment, your cash on cash return will be the same if you've paid cash. Um, and this is where the power of remember before when I said if you properly leverage debt you can start to see how things accumulate um, and it, to your benefit and so your rate of return is based on your total investment regardless of where that cash comes from and then when you start with cash on cash return you're only factoring in the cash that you have in that transaction so let's look at pretty simple. If you've been watching the podcast in order, the last few were spent a lot on talking about the importance of appliances and providing all your appliances in order to maximize your rent. Washing machines and dryers, you can, there's a direct cost to them. In houses and properties that provide them in unit tend to rent for more, anywhere from 25 to $50 more per month depends on what your market is. And so I'm gonna make some assumptions here and the numbers might be different in your neighbor, in, in your market, and so you gotta know what's good for Europe. So we're gonna say in the market here, excuse me, $50 is what you can get when you provide a washer and dryer. We say $50 is what comes in extra and we're only gonna look at that washing machine and dryer as an example of how you, focusing on your cash flow and these numbers can help improve your property's performance. So let's say you're gonna, you don't have a washer and dryer and you're like, okay, well, I'm gonna provide it. And so that way I can bump my rent up 50 bucks. So you go out to the store, Home Depot, Lowe's, whatever appliance pro place that you have in your area that you like to buy appliances. And you go then you buy a washer and dryer. You don't go for the bare minimum. Don't go for the low end stuff because it's gonna break. Um, but you go for something decent, something nice and you spend $1,000 on it because you got it on sale. Well, appliances go on sale all the time. If you're paying full price for an appliance, shame on you. Wait for the sales um, because they always have them. Um, you buy a nice set washer and dryer for $1,000 and then you look at, you're gonna bring in an extra $500. You're gonna bring in an extra $50 per month on them and so that year, you're gonna bring in an extra $600, which is pretty good. 
So you look at $600. So the way you get your, and this is, let's assume we've paid cash. And so you're going to, your rate of return will be the $550 per month times 12, which equals $600. And you divide that by your investment, $1,000. And if you pay cash, cash is $1,000. So you're looking at, multiply by 100, you're looking at 60% cash on cash return in the first year or 60% um, return on investment. That's phenomenal. If you can do that, that's great. And then within two years, you've got all your money back, plus you're getting more. And so by providing that appliance, in two years, you are way in the positive on what you're out of pocket. And in my book, that's a no-brainer, that you, you, you make more money in the long run. So. The people who focus strictly on short term, what's in my account today and what's my cash flow today, it, you, it can cause your property not to perform as well. Because if you don't want to spend that thousand dollars, because you're like, ah, I don't just don't want to spend it, not that big a deal. What's fifty bucks a month? Well, where else are you going to put that thousand dollars and get sixty percent return on your money? Please let me know, because I, I, I truly have zero idea. And if you can go get 5% on that money, $1,000, 5% on it, awesome. I have zero idea where you can go and do that unless you're doing some high-risk high stock stuff. Um, and so, kind of a no-brainer. But what happens if you finance that washer and dryer? Same washer and dryer, instead of paying cash, you put it on a credit card. Interest free, interest, I don't I don't care. Whatever it is. And let's say well let's say you have 17% interest. And I'm gonna you're gonna hear some clicking here. I'm gonna pull up a credit card calculator. So you put that thousand dollars on a credit card. 17% interest and you're gonna pay 30 bucks a month towards that credit card. And so because remember you bring it in 50 and then you are going to pay 30 a month and that works out with 17% interest works out to 46 months of payment so just under four years and typically you're not gonna have any maintenance calls in the first four years so in four years at 17% interest you'll have paid off 46 months so two months all you so in a little under four years you're gonna have that paid off and you think <coughs> wonderful whatever that's not that great um, Although my rate of return is still the same, actually your rate of return goes down because you're paying interest, but we'll just assume that stays at 60%. Awesome, great. Not that I haven't benefited at all. But here's the fun part. You take that 50 that comes in, remember, cash on cash return is after expenses, income minus expenses divided by your investment. $50 comes in, you take out the third that you paid the credit card company, and you're left with $20. I'm trying to do this on video. I can never remember which is which. Um, recording the podcast and the video at the same time. So you net 20 bucks. You're like, 20 bucks a month? whoop de do. Well, what's your cash on cash return? You have $0 into that washer and dryer. So you are making $20 a month after your interest and <clears throat> your credit card payment, 200 bucks a month. That's infinite return. Like where are you getting infinite return 
anywhere. The answer is nowhere. And so like, it becomes even more of a no-brainer to put that washer and dryer in there because now, yeah, you're only making 20 bucks a month. Now guess what? Instead of, you still get that 60% rate of return, but your cash on cash return's infinite. How awesome is that? And what's even better, at the end of the year, you're gonna have $240 sitting there in a reserve account. So if it does break, now you can pay that repair. It's not even out of your pocket anymore. The extra additional income is still paying for it. <clears throat> and that's the power of properly leveraging debt. We're scared as an American society of debt because debt is bad. And consumer debt, yes, consumer debt is bad. You should, my personal goal is to have zero consumer debt. We pay off credit cards monthly in my household unless we have 0% interest. And then we are borrowing that money for as long as possible because it's 0% interest. And when you factor in inflation, I'm coming out ahead. So I'll take that all day long. Um, so I'm a huge fan of properly leveraged business debt. And when you start looking at rate of return and cash on cash return, you can really start to see the power of small increases in your rental property can have some pretty large effects. And I know what you're going to say. Uh, infinite return sounds wonderful, but it's only 20 bucks a month, man. Is that really all that important? Well, compounding over time, it, it does. It becomes important. Remember, in four years, you own those outright. And now you're making 50 bucks a month for something you didn't pay for. Zero dollars came out of your pocket. The tenant paid it. Yes, you paid the bills, but the tenant gave you money. Up front, you paid zero. Like, what's more powerful than leveraging debt in that manner? And looking at how providing that appliance that you didn't want to provide before just enabled you to crush it for your rental property on your return. Now, <clears throat> let's say you don't really care about 20 bucks a month. You don't care about infinite return and making 20 bucks a month because you think that's horse shit. Who cares? It's only 20 bucks, 240. You know, it's 240 in the year. Whoop de doo. Plus, you gotta pay taxes on that 240. Like, I'm just a grouchy old crotchety dude and I just wanna bitch about everything. Okay, cool. Gotcha. But if in your market, other people are providing those washing machines and dryers and your house is renting for $1,500 and your property sits vacant for two weeks extra compared to your competitors because they have the washer and dryer and you don't, what's 1,500 divided by two? 750. So you just lost $750 because you didn't want to provide a washer and dryer. That would have made you more money. You probably could have got your place rented at 1,550. So not only did you not get the future rent, in, you know, the additional rent now, and then when you raise the rent 5% next year or 3%, 3% of 1550 is a little bit more than 1500 Not much, but a little bit. And that goes up over time. You also lost the 750 on the front end for your vacancy. Now, you didn't want to paint your house because, well, the house paint job's all right. And you didn't want to spend the two grand on painting it. But yet it takes you an extra month to rent the house at 1500 because the house just isn't that, I mean, the paint's pretty bad. No one really likes it. You got this bright blue bold color that you have here in my office, which I like. My management company's called Blue Water. I love it. So, but for a rental property, heck no. 
but you got this blue color, you got some pink color, some yellow, bright yellows. So your house doesn't rent for a month because of the bad paint job. You finally get someone in there. They're like, yeah, we don't care about the paint, whatever. And you're like, whew, saved two grand on painting. I'm glad I saved that. Oh, wait, you lost 1500 on your rent. So really you save 500 bucks and you still have a bad paint job. And when those tenants move out in a year or two, you're still going to have a bad paint job that you're eventually going to have to pay for anyhow. So you're just punting that expense down the road. And if you really choose never to take care of it, your vacancy time period is just going to get longer and longer. And then eventually your rent isn't going to be at market anymore. And you're going to start coming down because everyone else has that paint, newer paint, looks good, looks rent ready, ready to go. And you're not. So your rent's going to have to start reflecting the quality that your house is falling down on. So <clears throat> although I'm a huge fan of cash flow, you still got to, on the surface, you got to get under the surface and stop looking at cash flow as what's in your bank account versus what's at, your, at the end of the month, because that's not the only factor there. Um, that is cash flow, but also what's your future cash flow? And it's the one thing that when I talk with clients and prospective clients is you got to like, what's the long term here? Well, how's this going to impact you long term? And you got to look at your long term cash flow because it's so many people just don't care about the cash flow and they think it's not that big of a deal. I'm only losing a hundred dollars or I make it back on taxes because even though I'm losing money now, I get to deduct all this stuff when we factor it back in and I'm making money, then that's a bad investment. I, I, I don't know how else to tell you. Unless you live in an area where, 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 where values are skyrocketing and if you lose for two years and that third year you can start crushing it, great, wonderful. It doesn't always work. Um, we've had a nice long run on rental properties appreciating and uh, appreciating up in value, which is great and wonderful. But when 2008 happened in the summer, those values plummeted and they went, they, they, they got crushed. But the, what enabled my investment company to survive was our focus on cash flow, And we were able to continue paying all of our mortgages because we had the appropriate cash flow to sustain it and that's why cash flow is so vital and if you are losing money on your real estate month to month you need to change that and sometimes it's tough sometimes you got to look at it and be like you got to sell this property and move on maybe you got to refinance your debt to a lower rate maybe um maybe you've owned it for 10 years or something and you got a high rate and you spread it back out over 30 you know lower that payment whatever it takes to get to that positive cash flow position you know, and then, you know, talking about raising, you know, not having appliances or having your property be sub, not, not to the level of your competitor so it sits longer. I often hear people say they want to maximize their rent at renewal. They want to get as much as they can. I've even heard people say that they will raise rents above market if a tenant's in the property just so they can raise rents every year, no matter what. And that's, that's a tough one. So let's say you are renting for $1,500 and 
you're like, well, I'm going to raise rent a thousand. I mean, a hundred dollars to sixteen hundred in these tenants because, well, market's kind of been flat for the last year, and so I want to still get an extra hundred because that's when my taxes went up, my insurance went up a little bit. So I'm going to keep up and I'm going to raise rent. So you send them that notice from fifteen hundred to sixteen hundred to renew. Sorry, taking some more, another drink of tea here. Tenant says, well, that's awesome, but property down the road here is renting for $1,400, so I'm going to save $2,400 this year and move out. And you think, okay, cool. So I'll just put it back up at $1,600 and see what I can get. And then it sits, and it sits, and it sits, and then you drop it to $1,500 and finally get someone in there. And you're like, well, you know what? Scratch that example. Let's say they're at $1,400. They're slightly below market. Yeah, scratch that last 30 seconds, 60 seconds. They're at 1400 And they say, and you want to bring it to 1500 because that's what market's at. And you say, you're going up $100 to market rent. And, you know, so you're not going above market. But some people still do try to get above market when they, when, when uh, just, just because. They race every year no matter what, which I think is foolish. You should never have a 100% rule, um, unless that rule is always be nice, always be a good human. Um, so you go from 1400 to 1500 because you want to get market rent. Tenant says, well, you know, this house down the road, it's quite the same. I can get it for 1425 I'd rather be at 1425 or I got to move. Um, and you say, it's only $75. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold firm. I want my 1500 And so they say, okay, we're moving. They give you notice and they move out. Because to them, that was a lot of money. 75, 75 bucks a month was a, was a lot for them. And so they went to the other place that was you know, 1425 And they, so they're saving, what, eight, $900 a year. And so for them, it's a ton of money. I don't know about you. I don't want to spend an extra $900 if I don't have to per year. And you say, I guess, fine, I'll get another tenant in there. New tenant moves in at 1500 You think, damn right, I got my $1,500. Woo, woo, cash flow. $7,500 more per month. I'm a genius. Problem is, your property sat vacant for two weeks. So right there is a lost $750. And then you also had to paint the place. And then you had to do some other things to it. And so your out-of-pocket costs ended up being $400. So now you're looking at $1,150 out-of-pocket. And your rent only went up. Uh, net positive $100 per month so 12 so you made an extra $50 that year awesome for you but if you look at if you would have went 1250 you're only looking at a 750 increase so really you could have you only got 900 more because your tenant was was willing to pay a little bit more so you actually lost money compared to what the tenants previous tenants did to the new tenants. So you're even though you're making $100 more per month, your cash flow looks better. You lost money because you didn't look at cash flow as a whole. You only looked at that finite silo of what was rent coming in and you're like, "Yeah, 100 more a month, I win." But you lost. What if what if your vacancy goes from 2 weeks to a month? Now, you got your fifteen hundred, so yeah, you made an extra twelve hundred, but now you lost fifteen hundred in revenue. Well, fourteen hundred because that's what they were previously paying. So, 
you lost $200 that year in net loss. So although your cash flow is better, your cash on cash returns worse, your rate of return, your return on investments will lower, you lost because you only focused on that one piece of cash flow and that was income. Cash flow looks at income and expenses. Total, all that stuff rolls into cash flow. And you only looked at income and part of that equation, like, yeah, I won. Like, no, you didn't. What are your expenses? You gotta look at cash flow more than just one month. Look at it over that year period. Yes, that you have to be positive that month. Because if you're not positive in the months, you're not gonna be positive at the end of the year. There will be some months where you are in a negative because an expense pops up. That's fine. That's why you have a reserve account. That's why you put the money there. So going back to when I talk about cash flow, we're looking at the whole picture, not just your income, what's coming in, of rent, income of rent. You also gotta look at your expenses and your net operating income. So that is my rant and education, so to say, on cash flow. And the importance of cash flow. Cash flow is vital. And when I talk again, when I talk about cash flow, I'm not talking about just the income, income and expenses over the month, over the year. And you put that all together to make make the picture. Um, and also look at cash on cash return, properly leverage debt. And maybe the stuff I'm saying doesn't work for you. I'm just a blowhard sitting here talking. Do what works for you. And find good advice. That's what I beg of you. I, I read a lot online because I like to see what's out there. I love learning new things, but there's so much garbage advice out there of just break even throughout the year and you'll make it up in the long run. And then you make it back on taxes and all these weird ways to try to hedge your bets, not hedge your bets, but how to squeak out a penny of profit. Because after 30 years, you have 30 pennies. I'm like, it's not what it's about. Rental properties aren't a get rich quick by any stretch of the imagination. Um, if you want the shiny stuff and the get rich quick, go find people selling you flipping courses. Um, it's a grind, but it can be a profitable grind when done right. And you need to focus on your cash flow, your income, your expenses, your cash on cash return, and properly leveraging debt. If you have any questions, reach out to me, please. I love talking this stuff. Maybe you think everything I said is garbage and you don't want to listen to any of it and tell me I'm wrong. Cool, would love it. Love to hear your feedback. I'm always looking for different ways to think about things, but my, my position on cash flow is based on real world experience. It wasn't theory for me. 2008 hurt, 2009 hurt, crushed me. And I've learned cash flow, equity, not so much. Cash flow is important. Sorry, that kind of sounded like ah. cash flow is the ultimate. Equity is a distant, distant second. Have fun out there. Enjoy your rental property. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Successful Rental Podcast. I truly appreciate you taking the time to listen to my rantings and ravings on rental properties and property management. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast player. Or jump on over to SuccessfulRental.com to connect with me.